Chapter 26 begins a four-chapter section of the book of Jeremiah. Um, and we know that Jeremiah is not organized chronologically, but often thematically. And this is one of the times where the common theme of chapters 26 to 29 is Jeremiah's conflict with the false prophets of Judah. And it's not surprising there would be conflict right? Considering the hard things, even the harsh things at times that Jeremiah has been speaking to the priests and the prophets and the people of Judah. Really, conflict was inevitable because it was kind of irresistible force meets an immovable object, right? Jeremiah falters at times. He's human. We've seen him get, get real and get vulnerable and then get really broken before the Lord and even get angry before the Lord. But nonetheless, Jeremiah stays faithful to the ministry that God has called him to, faithful to the things that God has called him to say. Prophets and priests of Judah, on the other hand, are really invested in their perspective. They're entrenched in their disobedience. So you got Jeremiah who keeps on keeping on preaching, the priests and the prophets, the false prophets, who keep on keeping on resisting. And in these next few chapters, we see the collision happening. And we've seen some of that in the first 25 chapters, right? We've seen Jeremiah face opposition at different times from different quarters. But tonight it moves from side dish to entree. Tonight, the, the opposition to Jeremiah and to his teaching, but, but really to, to him personally, moves from the margins and becomes the main subject of, of the text. Four distinct encounters over the next four chapters. We'll look at two of them tonight. It's interesting that as we move into this section, we also change voice. We move from the first person to the third person. First 25 chapters are exclusively, I can't think of an exception, in the first person. Sometimes we have to try to suss out, okay, is it Jeremiah speaking for God? Is it Jeremiah speaking to God? Or is it God speaking directly? But it, always in the first person. Chapter 26 to 45 is recorded in the third person, presumably because Baruch, uh, Jeremiah's scribe, or others are capturing what's being said, what's being talked about. But let's dig in. Chapter 26, verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord, saying, verse 2, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house, all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not diminish a word. Don't surround this with a lot of packing peanuts. Don't try to polish this to, 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 or sweeten it to make it go down easier. Speak what I'm telling you to speak. Perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way, that I may relent concerning the calamity which I purpose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings. And you shall say to them, verse 4, Thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me, to walk in my law, which I've set before you, to heed the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you, both rising up early and sending them, but you have not heeded, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. One of the things we're always trying to figure out when we read Jeremiah is where are we? 
When is this happening? When are these things being spoken? Sometimes we know. Sometimes the, we know that we don't know. Sometimes we know we have no idea. And sometimes we kind of take an educated guess. This is one of the episodes that we can know fairly precisely. This is 609 B.C., Jehoahaz's time on the throne has ended after three months, and maybe we could put that family tree up on the screen just to remind us of, of things that we've covered in recent weeks. Jehoahaz's time on the throne has ended after three short months. He's been dragged off to Egypt. It's Jehoiakim's turn. And knowing Jehoiakim's character, this is not a good person, God sends Jeremiah to the temple at, at the time of his ascent to the throne, Jehoiakim's ascent, God sends Jeremiah to the temple to preach a sermon of admonition, a warning to all of the cities of Judah, verse 2. All of the cities. How, how could he go to Jerusalem and warn all of the cities? Probably because it was a feast day when people throughout Judah would throng uh, to Jerusalem Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, those were the feasts where able-bodied men were required to be in Jerusalem. So probably one of those three days where people from all over would hear God through Jeremiah warn the people, repent, turn from the evil course that you have, have set upon or face the same fate that Shiloh suffered. Interesting that God has Jeremiah speak of the northern kingdom euphemistically by, by, by way of that city Shiloh. Why is Shiloh significant? It was the place of worship in the north. So this is probably a thinly disguised reminder, hey, Jerusalem being your place of worship, Jerusalem being the site of the temple, is not going to be enough to protect you. The northern kingdom worshipped at Shiloh. That wasn't enough to protect them. And the fact that you worship in Jerusalem won't be enough to protect a people given over to disobedience despite the law, despite prophet after prophet trying to point people back to the law. If all of this sounds familiar, it's probably because we read very similar words in chapter 7 a sermon that was also delivered in the temple courtyard. And we talked about it at the time. Most scholars believe these are two different recordings, two different, not transcriptions, but two different uh, renditions of the same event. There, there are a few who disagree and say, no, it was two different sermons given in the same place. I think more likely it was the same sermon recorded in two different places with two different emphases, sort of like Kings and Chronicles record a lot of the same happenings, but from different perspectives. Chapter 7 emphasizes, hey, here's what was said in, in gory detail. Chapter 26 addresses more the response that Jeremiah got. And as, as, as you can expect, the response to these words was not positive. Verse 7, the priests and the prophets and all the people not literally all the people, but all the people who were there, heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And again, all of the people would have been a representative cross-section from throughout Judah. They heard the words, and it happened, verse 8, when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all of the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him 
saying, you will surely die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, this house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant? And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. So it was, it, was, it was a riot, basically. Everybody turning on Jeremiah, speaking against him as if with one voice. The priests, the prophets, the common people, all in agreement. No true prophet would speak this way. They couldn't believe, they couldn't conceive that God would destroy the temple, that God would allow Jerusalem to be conquered, that he would treat Jerusalem the same way that he allowed Shiloh to be treated. And because they didn't believe it, because it was inconceivable that God would speak such a thing, that made Jeremiah, in their eyes, a false prophet. And under the law, Deuteronomy 18, verse 20, that meant he needed to die. False prophets were stoned. Now, the political leaders hear what's going on. They decide to weigh in. Verse 10, when the princes of Judah the political leaders, the, the civil government, heard these things. They came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and sat down in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house, where they would typically hold court. <clears throat> and the priests and the prophets spoke to the princes and all the people, saying, this man deserves to die. So they brought the accusation to them. For, for he's prophesied, here's the charge, he's prophesied against this city, as you've heard with your own ears. But, verse 12, Jeremiah gets to speak in his own defense. They, they ask him, in effect, what, what's your version of this? And Jeremiah spoke to all the princes and the people, verse 12, saying, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city with all the words that you have heard. It's what God told What do I have to say for myself? I'm just saying what God told me to say. Now, therefore, amend your ways. This is what God said and your doings, and obey the voice of the Lord your God. Then the Lord will relent concerning the doom that he's pronounced against you. You need to be less concerned with me and more concerned with yourselves, Jeremiah is saying. God is giving you one last chance. God has sent me with a message of repentance. You need to listen. You need to believe. You need to obey. As for me, here, here I am in your hand. Do with me as seems good and proper to you. But just one thing, know for certain if you put me to death, you will surely bring innocent blood on yourselves, on this city, and on its inhabitants, for truly the Lord has sent me to you to speak all of these words in your hearing. He basically repeats God's message. And he says, you can believe it or not believe it, but if you put me to death, you're adding to the list of charges. In addition to all of the other things that God has against you, you'll have my innocent blood to answer for. It's interesting that, that Jeremiah takes advantage of the opportunity that he's given. A lot of you work in, in places or go to school in places that either formally or informally have a, have a rule, no proselytizing. Don't go around here telling people about Jesus or the Bible or, or, or your church. The thing is, though, even, even in places where that rule is, is, is clearly stated, and, and whether or not it's, it's legal and whatever the First Amendment has to say about it, even if you choose to respect the rule, if someone asks you a question, there's, there's no limitation on how you can answer. 
That's why Peter said, be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. Because somebody might ask, and when they ask, (laughs) the gloves come off. Anything is fair game. Because when someone says, hey, I I heard you talking about Jesus, they asked. (laughs) I I heard you quoting the Bible. They wanted to know. And, and Jeremiah takes advantage of just that kind of an opportunity. They, they, they said, Jeremiah, what do you have to say for yourself? And he, he takes advantage of that to say, here's what God gave me to say, and I'm going to say it again, since you're asking. And if, and if you silence me, you, it's, the blood is going to be on your hands. It's going to have consequences. I'm just doing my job. Do you really want to add that guilt to the guilt that you already have? So apparently Jeremiah is, either Jeremiah is convincing or the Spirit of God is moving or both. Verse 16, the princes and all the people said to the priests and the prophet, yeah, this man does not deserve to die, for he's spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And either they believe that he really is speaking for God or they don't want to take the chance. You can't prove that he's not speaking for God. And, and verse 17, the elders agree. Maybe they went to the elders and consulted. Is this a legitimate prophecy? Or, or maybe they were, you know, we, we're not sure how they got pulled in. But certain of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all of the assembly of the people, saying, You know, you're right. Micah prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Micah said that. And everyone thinks Micah was a prophet. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah ever put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor? And the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them. But here we are. We're doing great evil against ourselves. They quote Micah 3.12. rather. It's the only time in the Old Testament where one prophet quotes another prophet by name. So this is significant. And they say, hey, we, we, we recognize Micah was a prophet. We all believe and agree that he spoke for Yahweh. And he said largely the same thing that Jeremiah is saying. He said in the days of Hezekiah, he said that Jerusalem would become a heap of rubble. No one stoned Micah. On the contrary, Hezekiah listened to him. Hezekiah responded to him. Hezekiah heeded his words and repented. And God delayed judgment. God stayed his hand. 2 Kings 19, 2 Chronicles 32, Isaiah 37, if you want to go back and dig into that. 2 Kings 19, 2 Chronicles 32, Isaiah 37. So invoking Micah's prophecy, going back and using that as an example, as as a precedent, if you will, the elders acquitted Jeremiah. Skip down to verse 24. Nevertheless, the hand of... Aachim, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, so they should not give him into the hand of the people to put him to death. We skipped ahead because that's the outcome. He's acquitted. He's he's not killed. But before we get to verse 24, there's an interesting little sidebar. There's an insert here, starting in verse 20. 
Now there was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, who prophesied against the city and against this land according to all the words of Jeremiah. And when Jehoiakim the king, with all his mighty men and all the princes, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard it, I said Uriah, Uriah heard it, he was afraid and fled and went to Egypt. Then Jehoiakim the king sent men to Egypt, Elnathan the son of Akbor and other men who went with him to Egypt. And they brought Uriah from Egypt and brought him Jehoiakim the king, who killed him with the sword and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people. So this is a little random, at least at first glance. We don't know who Uriah is. It's not Uriah of Uriah and Bathsheba, because 400 years separate the two. We don't know anything about him except what we just read. And what we just read is that this Uriah spoke a message very similar to the message of Jeremiah. What's the difference? Uriah's message reached the ears of Jehoiakim, who ordered his execution. Uriah tries to flee to Egypt, but Jehoiakim was Pharaoh's puppet at the time. So there would be like someone fleeing to Oklahoma. Okay, you, you, you can go there, but they're just going to send you back. And that's what happened. He was sent back and he was killed. And not only was he killed, he's denied an honorable burial. Doesn't get buried in the family tomb. His body gets tossed in the Kidron Valley. Why is this story here? Why is this inserted in the middle of Jeremiah's trial? Again, presumably by, by a scribe or, or, or someone else who's recording these things. A couple reasons. One is maybe to underscore the very real danger that Jeremiah is in. This, this wasn't a sham trial. This wasn't just for show. He could have been killed because prophets were killed for saying the kinds of things that Jeremiah was saying. So it could have been inserted there just to underline that the, the stakes really were high. It could also be there to underscore the fact that Jehoiakim is not a good guy. Hezekiah heard Micah and repented. Jehoiakim heard Uriah and raged. Or maybe it's both. Maybe it's a commentary on the danger Jeremiah was facing and on the character of Jehoiakim. Either way, pivot to chapter 27. Same theme continues. Jeremiah's conflict with the false prophets. But we're going to jump forward in time. We were, just a minute ago, in 609 BC, the ascension of Jehoiakim. Fast forward to 598, Judah's attacked by Babylon, 598, 597, for the second time. This is the second attack in which Jehoiakim is killed. Jehoiachin ascends the throne. He leads the nation for three months. Then he's taken prisoner, hauled away to Babylon. Hopefully this is familiar. We've, we've, we've gone through this a, a few times recently. So in, Nebuchadnezzar hauls him off to Babylon, appoints his own guy, Zedekiah, as a puppet king, and he rules from 597 to the destruction of Jerusalem, the third invasion in 586. You might be looking at verse 1 and saying, why are we getting into Zedekiah? What could that possibly matter? Chapter 27, verse 1, In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, we're talking about Zedekiah because verse 1 in the New King James is a copyist error. It's an error in transmission. It's supposed to say Zedekiah. Patrick, how do you know? Look down at verse 3. Verse 3, 
references Zedekiah, king of Judah. Look down at verse 12. And verse 12 says, Zedekiah, king of Judah. Look down at verse 20. Talks about Nebuchadnezzar already carrying away Jeconiah, another name for Jehoiachin. That's already happened. And after that, Zedekiah becomes king. Look at chapter 28, verse 1. It happened in the same year as the events of chapter 27, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah. So somebody copying one scroll to another got a name wrong. That should not cause us to doubt our Bible. The Bible is infallible in the original manuscripts, but along the way there are some copyist errors, most of which are really well known, and they're not hard to work around. And they never touch any area of doctrinal significance. There's no theology threatened. It's, it's names, it's places, it's dates, it's numbers. And all of that is one of the reasons that I like the New King James. I, I like the New American Standard. I like some other translations as well. I teach out of the New King James for a few reasons, one of which is that the, the, the errors like this are well-documented. They're well-known. Some of the newer translations like the ESV that, that a lot of people teach out of, it, it corrects some of these errors. The, the ESV reads Zedekiah, corrects the error in verse 1 there. But there are some other errors that we're just figuring out as we go. So I'd rather work around the known problems than, than plunge into problems that, that we haven't completely figured out yet. Anyway, with that aside, let's read the chapter. Chapter 27, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son, the descendant of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus said the Lord to me, Make for yourselves bonds and yokes. Could also translate that bonds and straps. And put them on your neck and send them to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the Ammonites, the king of Tyre, the king of Sidon, by the hand of the messengers who come to Jer Jerusalem by Zedekiah, king of Judah and command them to say to their masters, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus say you shall say to your masters, Bring this message back to your respective kings. Verse 5, I've made the earth, God says, the man and the beast that are on the ground. How? By my great power and by my outstretched arm. And have given it to whom seem proper to me. And now I've given all the lands into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Not that he's worshiping the true and living God, but God is using him for, for God's purposes. And the beasts of the field I've also given him to serve him. So all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the time of his land comes, and then many nations and great kings shall make him serve them. And it shall be that the nation and kingdoms which will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation I will punish, says the Lord with the sword, the famine, and the pestilence, until I have consumed them by his hand. So we have here another symbolic act, another object lesson that God is giving Jeremiah to, to, to act out. Build yourself, make yourself a yoke out of leather straps and wood bars. And, and translators, commentators argue, was it one yoke or is it many yokes? Because you could read it as multiple yokes or 
one yoke with multiple straps and multiple bars, you know, one under the neck and one over the neck is, is typically what a, a yoke for, for horses or cattle would, would look like. If it's multiple yokes, it's, it's send, send a yoke to each of these kings with their respective ambassadors. If it's one yoke, hey, look at this and send, send word of this to, to the various kings. It's not a critical point because either way, the message is the same. And the message is verse 5, God is God and you're not. The timing is interesting. You've got representatives of all these various nations all in Jerusalem at the same time. Now, it's not like they were always there. It's not like all of these nations had embassies, you know, like, like, like we do. You know, you go to any foreign capital, almost any foreign capital in the United States has an embassy there. That's where the ambassador resides, and it's treated as U.S. soil even in a, in a foreign land, and they have embassies in the United, in the United States in Washington, D.C. That, that wasn't a thing in, in this time. They were there for a particular occasion. They were there for a reason. Most likely, they had gotten together for a summit meeting to plot the overthrow or, or, or an attempted uprising against Babylon. And God takes this occasion of having all of them in one place for that reason to say, you can plot and plan all you want. You can scheme all of the schemes you want. It's going to fail because I'm God. I'm the creator and I rule over creation. And verse 6, I'm handing all of you over to Nebuchadnezzar. And his family's going to rule over you. He's going to set his yoke upon you. And it's going to be that way for three generations. Nebuchadnezzar, his son, his grandson, Belshazzar. Then and only then, after three generations have elapsed, 70 years, then other nations and kings will have their turn to put their yoke on Babylon. And that's a reference to Cyrus and Darius and others that we'll meet in, in the book of Daniel. Ending Belshazzar's reign, just as God promises here. That's the way it's going to happen, God says to, to Zedekiah and to the foreign leaders that he's meeting with. You can resist, but if you resist it, you're going to be met with the, 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 the trifecta of God's judgment, sword, famine, pestilence. So how about don't resist, he says in verse 8. If you know ahead of time it's not going to go well for you, how about don't do it? And how about don't listen to anyone trying to persuade you? How about don't listen to anyone speaking comforting words to you, encouraging you to rise up, words contrary to this prophecy that I'm giving you. Verse 9, do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, your sorcerers. God's being expansive. He's being inclusive. He doesn't want to leave anybody out. Don't listen to anyone who speaks to you saying you shall not serve the king of Babylon. No, no, that'll never happen. For they prophesy a lie to you to remove you far from your land, and I'll drive you out and you will perish. The idea is if you listen to them, it's going to go worse for you. If they had listened to God and repented and accepted that Nebuchadnezzar would rule over them, the judgment would be less severe. God has said that in, in previous chapters, right? The harder you push back, the more likely it is that you're going to die in the process. 
False prophets are telling people what they want to hear. Jerusalem won't fall. Nebuchadnezzar's not going to invade. You're not going to go into exile. And here God repeats what he said so many times again. Verse 11, the nations that bring their necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I'll let them remain in their own land, says the Lord, and they shall till it and dwell in it. But if you push back, it won't be that way with you. God is challenging them in their pride. Because in our pride, we don't want to surrender. In our pride, we'd rather fight and lose. God says, no. It's in surrender that you win. What does that sound like? It sounds like our relationship with the Lord. We can go down easy or we can go down hard. We can fall upon the rock or be broken against the stone, the same choices that God always gives. What stands in the way of us making the easy choice? Pride. So having delivered that message to all of the nations collectively, Judah included, Jeremiah pivots verse 12 and he starts to speak to Zedekiah exclusively. I also spoke to Zedekiah, king of Judah, according to these words. Zedekiah heard what he said to all of them together, but now he's zeroing in. He's, he's, he's singling Zedekiah out, saying, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Surrender. Let him conquer you. Why will you die, you and your people, by the sword, by the famine and by pestilence, as the Lord has spoken against the nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Therefore, do not listen to the words of prophets who speak to you, saying you shall not serve the king of Babylon. They prophesy a lie to you, for I have not sent them, says the Lord. I haven't sent those false prophets. Yet they prophesy a lie in my name, that I might drive you out and you may perish, and the prophets who prophesy. So it's the same thing, same message, essentially, same warning, same consequences. Why repeat? Probably, I mean, this is a surmise, but if they were all meeting in Jerusalem, and if we're right that the purpose of the meeting, the reason for the meeting was to, to band together and try to rise up against Babylon, probably either Zedekiah called the meeting or he was somehow instrumental to the plan. Either way, Jeremiah underlines for him specifically, do not, do not, do not fight against the Lord. And do not, do not, do not listen to people who contradict the Lord. If you do... God's going to drive you onto the land and he's going to drive you into your grave. You and your false prophets both. Spoiler alert, Zedekiah doesn't listen. And this is exactly what happens. So Jeremiah has spoken to the ambassadors and Zedekiah together. He speaks to Zedekiah alone. Now verse 6, he addresses the people. Sorry, verse 16. <clears throat> also, I spoke to the priests and all the people saying, thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of your prophets who prophesy to you, saying, behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be back, uh, brought back from Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. Remember, this is after the first two invasions. First invasion to Babylon, 606-605 B.C., second one, 598-597 B.C. In those invasions and the subsequent deportations, Nebuchadnezzar brought captives back to Babylon each of those two times. He also brought back souvenirs. He also brought back treasure. He also looted the temple and brought some of the fixtures and furnishings back with him. 2 Kings 24 tells the story. The false prophets are telling the people, 
don't worry, all of those items are going to be returned. They're all coming back. No, no, God says, verse 17, that's not going to be what happens. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city be laid waste? But, but you know what? If they're prophets, and if the word of the Lord is with them, let them now make intercession to the Lord of hosts, that the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah and at Jerusalem, do not go to Babylon. God is basically saying, hey, let's, let's do like we did in the days of Elijah. Let's, let's set up a prophet, prophet showdown. Over here we got the false prophets saying that all of the, the, the temple pictures and furnishings that were looted, they're going to be returned. How about you prophesy what's really going to happen, verse 19, for thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, concerning the sea, concerning the carts, concerning the remainder of the vessels that remain in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, did not take, has not taken yet, when he carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehiah, kingdom of Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Yes, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon, and there they shall be until the day that I visit them, says the Lord. How about you prophesy that the things that have already been taken are going to come back, I'm going to prophesy that the things that are still here are going to be taken. And let's see which actually happens. But after 70 years, after the punishment, after judgment, God takes on a note of hope. End of verse 22, Then, after the judgment, I will bring them up and restore them to this place. And of course, we know which prophets got it right. Oh, that we would be teachable. That's the thing that kept echoing in my, in my heart reading and studying this week. Oh, that when God sends a Jeremiah to speak to me, <laughs> that I wouldn't say, but I know I'm right. And when that Jeremiah says, okay, but here's, here's what's going to happen if you're wrong. No, I'm sure I'm right. And when that Jeremiah says, okay, I have no reason to lie. I'm not gaining anything by telling you this. I just love you. And it's out of an abundance of love and, 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 and at, at risk of our relationship that I'm saying these things. Oh, that I wouldn't be like Judah. I don't care. I'm still sure I'm right. How often, uh, how often have I done that? How often have we done that? All of us. When, when friends, when pastors, when God's word, when God's Holy Spirit, when God sends a Jeremiah, and instead of listening to that ambassador of God's truth and love, we choose to trust the power of positive thinking. If I want it badly enough, if I believe it hard enough, if I can believe it, I can become it. 
And, and like the false prophets, we can dress it up in spiritual language. I won't let that happen. I'm strong enough to stand against whatever you think is going to happen. I'm strong enough to stand against the Lord. Oh, really? <laughs> well, God won't let that happen. God wouldn't do that to me. God loves me too much to let that happen to me. Wait, the God who chastens those he loves? <laughs> And usually the way that God chastens those that he loves is by letting us go in our own strength. By taking, okay, if that's what, the, what you want to do, okay, I'm going to take the obstacles out of your way. Do it your way. I'll be over here when you're done. <laughs> oh, God, make me teachable. Have you ever prayed that? The, the thing about praying that, and God was reminding me this week, he doesn't make us teachable against our will. God, make me teachable. Okay, will you cooperate with me? God, make me do things that I refuse to do. That's not God. He has way too a high of a respect for our sovereignty. A lot of times we wish he didn't, right? But he does. So we can pray, God, make me teachable. But when we pray that, we also have to pray, God, show me the things that I need to do to cooperate as you teach me. And he's shown us a handful here as we wrap up tonight. He's reminded us tonight, listen to the godly people in our lives, the Jeremiah's, the people who have a track record of not serving themselves, the people who prove their love for us by their willingness to speak hard truth to us. People who are willing to faithfully wound us as friends and say things that are clearly not to their benefit, but, but to ours. How do we cooperate with, with God? How do, we, how do we become teachable? We listen to the Jeremiah's in our lives. Second thing, we listen to God's word. What, what, what kept Jeremiah from getting stoned to death in chapter 26? The word of the Lord. People willing to read it with, with open eyes and with, with, with clear hearts. Hey, this is what Micah said. And if we believe Micah, we can't dismiss Jeremiah. And really, it wasn't just Micah, right? It was Isaiah, it was all the prophets before him, all the way back to Deuteronomy and the prophet Moses. How does God keep us teachable? With his word. And, 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 our, and our determination to believe his word. Not rewrite it, not reinterpret it, but trust it and obey it. Believe that, that God gave it to us not, not to punish us, not to quench our joy, but to keep us safe. To point us to, to his presence. Third thing. Confess sin. What did God beg Judah to do again and again and again? Admit where you are. Admit what, you've, admit what you're doing. And, and if at any point along the way Judah had repented, early on God would have stayed his hand. Later on, what did we, what did we hear tonight again and again? It'll be easier for you. You'll still be chastened. 
But if you stop fighting, it'll be over more quickly and more mercifully. If you keep fighting, the destruction will be greater. We've proved that in our own life, haven't we? Confess sin. Proverbs 28.13 Unconfessed sin quenches God's voice. John 13.10, same thing. Jesus says to Peter, yeah, you, you, you need to be washed. <laughs> you, really, you need to confess sin. Our relationship needs constant restoration. <laughs> confess sin quenches the spirit. Leave it unconfessed long enough, it hardens the heart. That's what we're looking at in Judah. Oh God, keep that from, from being us. How? God, search me and know me and show me, is there any wicked way in me? Which means, fourth thing, and, and, and not pictured as directly here, but here God is speaking through the prophets to you and I, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God speaks through his word, through other believers, also through his still small voice. But the thing about God's still small voice, sometimes people say, how, how do I know if it's God's still small voice and how do I know if it's, it's just me talking to me? How do I differentiate between God the Holy Spirit and, and, and my own flesh? God the Holy Spirit always testifies to who? Jesus. John 15, 26, 1 John 5, starting in verse 5. The Holy Spirit always testifies to Jesus. The things that I'm hearing, that I think that I'm hearing, test the spirits. Is it magnifying Jesus, or is it magnifying my wishes, wants, and desires? Is it, is it making the name of Jesus great, or is it making my emotions great? God's still small voice. 1 John 5, beginning in verse 5, John 15, verse 26. Listen to God's still small voice. And then the fifth thing, what do we hear Jeremiah doing again and again and again? He's worshiping. He's declaring who God is. And, and, and yes, God is giving him those words to say, but God has given us words to say. God has given us his word. He's given us the Psalms. And he's given us so many different ways of magnifying him. Psalm 18.3, I will glorify the Lord, for he's worthy to be praised, and so shall I be saved from my enemies. Who's our biggest enemy? I'm my biggest enemy. Satan, the world, Satan can't touch me without God's permission. And God the Holy Spirit has given me victory over the world. The only one left who can drag me down is me. <laughs> if I magnify the Lord, if I glorify his name, because he's worthy to be praised, if I remember that, if I keep that idea in front of me, if I practice that, so shall I be saved from the enemy named Patrick. <laughs> so shall I be teachable. So shall I be usable in our Redeemer's hand. Lord,
Would you make us teachable? Would you remind us what that is? What it means? Why it's good? And Lord, would you bring Jeremiah's in our lives to remind us when we forget, when we doubt, when our pride rears up, when we get stubborn. Lord, I pray even tonight for those gathered, for those online at home. I pray for those who might be listening weeks or months from now. If we see ourselves in Judah tonight, a little or a lot, your spirit has been speaking to us about our stubbornness, our refusable, refusal to be teachable. Lord, would you, would you beckon us back? You call us to repentance. And you promise mercy. Lord, I pray that in this moment of clarity, we would run to you. Open our hearts to you. Be cleansed and restored to fellowship with you. Return to a place of being easily led by you. Have your way with us, Lord.